Welcome to the Doyen of Death podcast, funeral planning for those who don't plan to die. It's all about end-of-life issues and getting the conversation started about our 100% mortality rate. This series is hosted by Gail Rubin, certified thanatologist and the Doyen of Death. A Doyen is a woman who's considered senior in a group and knows a lot about a particular subject. Well, that's Gail. She knows all about creating the party no one wants to plan, a funeral or memorial service. She discusses the changes death can bring, and she'll make you laugh. This series includes episodes previously released as A Good Goodbye, a treasure trove of evergreen podcasts about funeral planning issues. This podcast reveals some of the mysteries and shares advice and tools that can reduce stress at times of grief, minimize family conflict, and help create a good goodbye. Remember, just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. So, here to talk about the subjects we sometimes avoid is author, speaker, and the doyen of death, Gail Rubin. Welcome. This is part two of our two-part episode. If you missed part one, do yourself a favor and go back to listen. And now back to more with the doyen of death. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Diane, Dr. Diane Pulaski about grief and physical reactions and dying. So we were talking about acupuncture as a modality for helping people to uh, address their physical reactions to grief. And uh, I know I've experienced acupuncture myself. It is wonderful. Okay, it's uh, going back to that just a minute. Acupuncture is one of the mo- because it's the modality I primarily work in. Uh, I can attest to how important it is to help releasing the trauma and 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 helping to allay some of the physical symptoms. If you think about, everybody has different reactions to the grieving process, and so there's different ways that you can utilize different modalities out there. I have patients that yo- do yoga. I have patients that that run. I have patients that um, get massage or chiropractic even can be beneficial. Things, any forms of body work where sometimes, sometimes that body work part is very important because the isolation, depending on the person, they feel isolated. And especially if they've been, their partner is gone and they feel that emptiness, sometimes the body work will help rebalance the field in a way where you get the touch as well, which is important to some people. Uh, and a lot of these things, like I said, in conjunction with talk therapy. Um, also, you know, there's nutritional supplements to help support the system, and I would talk to your professional about that. Uh, B vitamins are really good. I'm not making any diagnostics right now, but there's a lot of different supplements that help support the system as it has its individual reactions to the grief process. Hypnotherapy is a good one, meditation, exercise in general, and um, specifically for children. And I'm just going to make mention of this because there are therapists that work specifically with children and grief, which is a whole different thing because they're in a very different category. But there are thing, ways that children having going through the grief process and letting a child know that it's normal to have these things is, is very important. There are people who do, for instance, play therapy with children who can't really articulate their feelings of loss and grief, whether it's a death, whether it's a divorce, whether you know, it's a death in a family or an animal or something, 
that they don't know how to work with loss. And play therapy is really good where the children can start manifesting and working out their issues. Um, clergy talking to children, but and there's a lot of different things. Letting the kids know it's a normal cycle of nature is important. Um, all these things are important, but knowing that it's important to work with kids who may not be verbalizing, but as you watch them, you'll see that they're manifesting the effects of grief in different ways. So mm-hmm. it's important to watch your children as well. Mm-hmm. And speaking of kids, there's often a question, should a child be taken to a memorial service? And uh, along with that question, do you feel memorial services play a a role in helping people process their grief? I definitely believe, to answer your second question first, that I believe definitely that it's beneficial. I've seen through the years how ceremony and ritual, uh, which I do a lot, can be very beneficial. You know, after a person dies, by creating sacred time, sacred space to honor those memories and celebrate their the life, can help put the grieving process into a, a normal, healthy respect, perspective. Seeing life and death as part of, of the cycles of nature, and that's especially true with children. I think it's up to, in terms of the children themselves, it's up to the parent to see at what phase they think their child is um, <clears throat> ready to do this. And by talking to them and seeing and asking them, depending on the age group, I don't believe that shielding children from reality, especially with all the death that's on the videos and the TV, you know, or minimizing it. On the other hand, I don't think either of those are healthy to minimize or to deny. Or, um, but it's also needing to be assessed on an individual basis with each child because. Some of them may need a little help before, and if those children can't, getting back to ceremony and ritual, there's things that I've seen done with children where they write a note to their grandma or grandpa and put it in a helium balloon and then send the balloon up to heaven um, where they make a little altar and they or plant a tree and, um, and then write a note and put it in the dirt with the tree. And so every time they see it, they think of life to celebrate the living. I believe that um, ceremony and ritual can be really vital for that, to connect us with our ancestors, our lineage, and our past, and to honor the, the life of someone, not just sit with the memories as the, the death can really help to put the grief in perspective. Mm-hmm. By the way, I do want to mention, if you're going to do a balloon launch, please use environmentally friendly <laughs> balloons that Thank will you. biodegrade. <laughs> they yeah, are I available. Think, <laughs> I think that... You have some good ideas for these kinds of things in your book and, and with the work that you've done, and I, and I highly recommend people to, to look at that because, as, we, as I know, memorials and ceremony and rituals make a big difference. And the one thing I'll add to that is in my own tradition, I was raised Jewish, and there's an amazing tradition that I've come to understand how important it is, and that is the year cycle. is In the Jewish tradition, you do not put the tombstone up until a year after the death. And what that did in my experience with my mother and my sister is it gave me a chance to go through the entire first year of the first times without them, and then we all come back together, and it's almost like a release. And so I recommend to my patients to really consider after that first whole year cycle of not having the person with them to do something to honor that one year to help kind of embrace it and be able to move out after that first year can be really important as a ceremony and ritual also. Mm-hmm. Um, when we had the unveiling for my father-in-law's headstone, 
it was a very small gathering, and actually it's not a really a formal kind of um, ceremony, but mm -hmm. the rabbi had actually uh, read the words uh, from Ecclesiastes about, you know, to everything there is a season, and really putting that whole cycle of life, a season, uh, a year of seasons going by before we put the period at excuse me, on the end of the sentence in this regard right. is very valuable. I totally so, agree. So so we've talked a lot about, you know, the people who are left alive after someone they love dies, but what's available for people who are going through the dying process? Well, um, there's actually quite a bit, and I'm just in there... If we look, there are many ancient cultures and traditions that have had very specific beliefs and ways of dealing with death, both during life and as death approached, so that for those in those cultures, the dying people, they were taught, they knew exactly what to do, they were taught, and they were supported in their process. Okay, in some of these books, even there are even written doctrines, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Celtic Book and, and the Egyptian Book, and there's different cultures that have a series of doctrines, but today in our culture, we've come a really long way uh, in our palliative care, which is working with the dying, which is not curative, but palliative, which means just bringing comfort. It's like with where the word pallbearer came from. Um, so it's working towards working with the dying as opposed to working towards curing. And I would never minimize our each the individual wonderful doctors, nurses, and hospice people and support people that are out there, but there are still sometimes some gaps. And I have seen, being trained in hospice, being trained as a death educator, uh, there's a whole field of medicine now, or, or it's not really medicine, but a whole field now called thanatology, which is, and music thanatology is part of that, where they are actually thanatology, working with the dying to help promote comfort at that time. There's training programs where people will come into hospice with a harp, where people will come in and sit as bereavement counselors or working people, they call themselves sometimes death walkers or death midwives, I've heard in England. Mm -hmm. But there are groups of people that will work with, with people that do this. Um, but there are still some gaps, and I'm just going to share this if we have a moment, that I'm going to bring it home. I worked with someone in the last two weeks that just passed. I have known her a long time as my patient, and she came in in the last three weeks or so, four weeks of her life, and said to me, my doctors are giving me drugs and treatment to try to cure me or slow down my disease. My support group is either comparing medicines and symptoms or throwing out all kinds of stuff they find on the Internet to prolong their lives. They're up one minute, down the next, but they're not talking about their feelings. My hospice people are great, but they're tracking my physical changes and giving me meds and interventions to help me be more comfortable. And my clergy is preparing me for the beauty of the afterlife and telling me to believe but no one is helping me get ready to die, and I don't know what to expect, and I don't know how to do it. Mm. And that, um, that's part of the work that I've been doing over the last 30 years. And she looked at me, and she said, will you help me? And I said, you bet. And so um, I usually do this. is usually done for me in the course of my acupuncture treatments because we can do points to help release the trauma. We can do points to calm the system in her case. We could do points to help her breathe easier while we talked. And um, so I start with that, but then we take it, we took it a step further and begin to talk about unfinished business. 
And these are some of the things you talk about, too, about wills, advanced directives, funeral wishes. Some of the, you know, have you and your husband discussed these things? Um, and then we talked about bucket lists, including people you want to still see, places you want to go, things you want to do, and make a list of these things. And she would say, well, we're going to do it in three or four months. I said, why don't you think about doing it next month? You know, without kind of any judgment, but just being there. And then talking about the legacy that they want to leave behind, letters and gifts and things. And we talked about, in her case, her grandchildren and talked about she got to ended up going and getting them presents while she still could and putting notes on them for when they were 18 so that each one would have something from their grandma. You know, my own mother wrote a book for my daughter, so who was four when she died. And so as my daughter grew up, she could see her grandma in this, in this book. So we talked about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And then um, by getting those things done and out of the way, then the person can, can be freed up and ready to enjoy those last precious moments mm-hmm. and those la- that last part of the walk, and then we get into more things as we get closer. Okay. And, in fact, we're coming up on our third break. And, right. Uh, so we'll, um, we'll talk more about those details uh, when we come back from the break. The, um, it really is so important to to recognize, yeah, when the when the horizon is coming, and uh, how do we get ready for that? So we'll we'll continue that conversation when we come back. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Diane Pulaski, a uh, doctor of Oriental medicine, certified death educator, and grief counselor, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death has been producing Before I Die festivals for years. These festivals get end-of-life planning conversations started by putting the fun in funeral planning. Outside-the-box activities break down barriers to discussing death and planning for our 100% mortality rate. And now, Gail has created the Before I Die Festival in a Box, the comprehensive guide to producing your own community festival. It includes everything you need to create a successful event. How to find sponsors, build a team, market the event, schedule speakers, topics for discussion, workshop ideas, and much, much more. To learn how to get your Before I Die Festival in a Box, visit BeforeIDieFestivals.com or call 505 265-7215. Welcome back. Continuing our fascinating conversation with Dr. Diane Pulaski about grief and our physical bodies. And and we're on to the part about how do we help people who are facing, going through the dying process to face their fears and, and address whatever needs to be addressed before they die. So what, is, what else have you seen and, and helped people do? Okay. Um, as I said, well, depending where people are in the process, is I had, and I'm using my, my patient that I just, and dear friend who I just um, helped pass recently, is that it, we were able, while she was still mobile and was able to do things to take care of some of, that what she wanted to leave behind to finish some of her, quote, bucket list 
Um, and then as things got closer and she wasn't as mobile, we started talking about um, what mark she had already left on the world. I had had the opportunity to have training in um, in a training in a Buddhist perspective on dying called Being with the Dying, and, and also some other bereavement training. And and a lot of it is just quieting our own minds and sitting and being still. And I heard this person, my this my my wonderful woman, talking about all the regrets. And she looked at me and said, I just want more time. And and I didn't get to do the things I wanted. And I turned it, without being a therapist, just a human, and I turned it and said, let's look at what you did, what you have done. Look at these pictures of your beautiful grandchildren. Look at this love you've brought into the world. You know, so I started talking about what she did do, not what she didn't. Not necessarily... Um, you know, acclamations and accreditations and, um, you know, awards and things. Because as Kubler-Ross, who is one of the grand dames of this whole affair in terms of working with the dying, states is that at the moment of our death, it doesn't matter how much, how many awards and how many accolades and how much performance we have done. What matters is how much love we've given and how much love we've received. And so I just naturally focused on that, um, on her special mark that she was leaving in the world. And let her talk about her regrets for the past and her fears and hopes for the future. And, you know, and then about the walk itself, about the journey. And I was called um, on it one night last week when she had fallen. And she called at 11 o'clock at night and said, I need you. And I came over and I sat with her. And, in, and basically, we read some, I read some psalms and we just talked. And I talked about what I knew about the process. And um, and that's when we start getting this whole journey from life to death, and that's when we talk to, that's a spiritual meet, it's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and I sat with her, and we laughed, and we cried, and um, we talked about these things, and I told her stories of other people I've worked with where, yes, the light was there, and yes, the energy, and what we felt, and I saw things, and what I showed, I shared with her, and what things looked like, and... Um, using her frame of reference without throwing things in that were creating any dissonance for her, you know, at whatever level was creating comfort, but sharing that with her. And I told her the two things that I specifically know about about death and dying that I shared with them that I learned through the years is, one, it does not hurt to die, and two, no one dies alone, that there's always something there. And I know that moves into spiritual realms, I have seen it those too many times not to say it, mm-hmm. um, but I just put it out there that perhaps, you know, there's a relative that you feel comfortable with that you know that's always loved you that you could call on. You know, all of a sudden grandma was right there, you know, and so we used that as her anchor, mm-hmm. that grandma was right there, and she was the one who gave it to me, not me, me to her. So there's a lot of different people out there doing this kind of work. Anyway, the point I'll make with to finish the story is that I went over the next night, and she was peaceful, and I could tell she was starting. And I said, you did it, didn't you? You made that shift, and you're ready. And she nodded, and she goes, yeah, I am. You know, I can't, nobody can make that happen for another person, but we can create the space. And um, there are a lot of people out there that are doing this kind of work besides myself. Like I said, they call themselves different things. But what I am hoping to do in the next so many years is assist in the filling in the gap by putting together training programs and what I'm calling conscious deathing, 
Mm-hmm. You know, and as a childbirth instructor, I taught people to be birth coaches. Now I want to create certification program to train people to be death coaches or end-of-life facilitators because just as a coach at birth can be really helpful to move it, so can a death coach. And I'm hoping it's a personal goal. I have proposals and curriculum are being formulated. I'm looking for some, you know, financial support to assist me in this But um, because I think it's really time and I think it matters and I think it's really important for two reasons, Gail. And one is because it can help liberate the individual from their fear of death, offering an opportunity to change their attitude towards dying and preparing them for the experiences at the time of biological death. And because by helping to alleviate fear of death, I really believe it can transform an individual's way of being in the world. Because I really believe that when we stop fearing death, we can really embrace life. And that's part of what I want to start training people to do. And and how how would you train people in doing this? Um, I have about two hundred hours in a curriculum put together. I have uh, I've had opportunities besides the um, besides the epic training and the other kinds of training. I've also been trained in different indigenous cultures and ways of working to help people be able to start focusing outside of themselves. Um, I've been trained in shamanic or or, um, in different shamanic or indigenous native traditions where we can help people begin to expand beyond their physical frame while they're still alive and be comfortable moving in and out of those realms Mm -hmm. so that at the moment of, of the passing, there is a conscious movement. And so there are things that I have been trained and shown how to do that I have been shown how to teach. So it, it's it's all the book learning and all the experience and all the other kinds of learning, so to speak, that um, have come together in this curriculum. And who are the kind of people who would take this class? I have already been approached by some, uh, in some cases, their counselors. Uh, some people that I was actually trained with in my in my certificate certificate program at uh, Southwestern Graduate School up in Santa Fe, they have a year long certificate program in grief counseling and death education, and or music denatology. Or but people that are trained in death and dying want to take it a step further, and uh, and maybe ICU nurses, hospice nurses, um, individuals who have a medical background or have different kinds of backgrounds that want to take this next step. You know, there's always a question when it comes down to the realities and practicalities about insurance coverage and how that kind of thing would work. And um, none of that's been formulated yet. We're still, I'm still in the phase of getting a curriculum together. But those are the kinds of people that would be in, that have come to me already and said, "I want to take it this next step." Mm-hmm. You know, and I would think it could maybe there could be a um, a. a a smaller version for the families of people on hospice. When you think about it, there are, you know, the family members who are just as afraid of the person's death as maybe the Mm -hmm. person themselves are afraid of dying. And by helping teach the family members, the loved ones, uh, you know, a few things about death and dying that, that can help them understand and, that would be and a maybe great not thing be afraid. Yeah, that would be a great that would be a great thing to do. It wouldn't be this. What I have found in in taking these steps is there's got to be really strong training boundaries, and that's part of the training. 
But in terms of being able to abbreviate it for families, oh, absolutely. Absolutely, because I sat with the family too. And and there's a lot of dynamics that go on. And I, it's like I'm not, there's certain areas that just something simple about learning how to listen. And there is a myriad of, there are a myriad of wonderful books out there um, in the field of death and dying for families. Uh, the Symingtons wrote a great book on helping on when the family has to face terminal illness, and then there's a lot of others that take it the next step, you know, as death approaches. Um, hospice social workers are are really well trained at this. There are some wonderful people I've connected with through a family's hospice worker, and I tell them, sit down with the social worker, sit down with the hospice people, tell them you don't know what's going to happen, have them walk it through with you. Mm-hmm. You know, get those numbers on your on your refrigerator. Make sure you sit down and have your own sessions with these people as it gets closer, so you know what to expect, so you're not afraid. Mm-hmm. So I, I I I have done worked with families like that, and something like this in an abbreviated form could be really helpful. I, that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Well, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, are there any other thoughts you'd like to share before we wrap up? Um. Just that I'm finding that every person I work with has some kind of something that they hold. And whether it's grief, whether it's every, everyone, if part of my training was we had to make a timeline of our losses. Okay, this was part of my death education training. And if we all sat down and looked at all of our losses, I would, I would, I would bet to say that almost everyone has had some kind of trauma, some kind of loss. And I would say just just stay open to the fact that there is grieving in your life and that there is loss in your life. And in order to really fill up with the joy that's in your life, it's important to acknowledge and honor those losses in order to step into the next phase of the joy of being. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, all I have to say. It's Except all that I'm yin happy to help anybody I can. All right. Well, you know, it's all yin and, and yang and, you know, light and dark. It it all blends together and and it makes an awesome whole. It, it's all part of the circle. Yes. It's yes. all part of the circle. And I really want to speak my gratitude for you for doing this because I think your work in the world has really opened the doors to a lot of people being able to step up. And I am happy as one of your colleagues to help promote this too. So I have a lot of gratitude for you. Thank you. Thank you. And you have a website, energymedicinedoctor.com, correct? Right, energymedicinedoctor.com. Okay, so Dr. Diane Pulaski, thank you so much for being on the show today. Wonderful, fascinating conversation. And for everybody out there, thank you for listening. It's It's been my pleasure to bring you all of these fascinating guests that we've talked with on A Good Goodbye Radio. Visit my website, agoodgoodbye.com, to download a free planning form to help you pull together all the information you need before you go. Remember, talking about sex won't make you pregnant. Talking about funerals won't make you dead. Start a conversation today. Gail Rubin, the doyen of death, is the author of three award-winning books. In A Good Goodbye, Funeral Planning for Those Who Don't Plan to Die, Learn how to save money, reduce family conflict, and minimize stress at a time of grief. 
Just as talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals won't make you dead, and your family will benefit from the conversation. Kicking the bucket list. 100 downsizing and organizing things to do before you die brings a light touch to downsizing and organizing for end-of-life issues. And hail and farewell, cremation ceremonies, templates and tips helps you easily create meaningful memorial services with sample scripts, suggested readings, and music recommendations. These fine books by Gail Rubin, The Doyen of Death, are available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. For more information, visit agoodgoodbye.com. Thank you for joining us on the Doyen of Death podcast. You can find episodes of this podcast and past episodes of A Good Goodbye with Gail Rubin on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on Gail's work, visit agoodgoodbye.com. <laughs>